Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Evidence Podcast, the podcast where real people share real stories to show real evidence of a very real God. I'm your host, recording from Knoxville, Tennessee, Daniel Brooks. Joining me from Danville, Illinois, he is a youth minister, a coffee roaster, and he coaches cross country and now track for his local high school coach, Jordan Lane. Whole opera chachos. And also joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, an insurance adjuster, a world traveler, and a talented musician, JT Shavers. I guess. So might I just note, JT and I get these super awesome intros. You give yourself that you're just from Knoxville, Tennessee. So you want to like give yourself a little bit of a bio, Daniel? Sure. A uh, past missionary, lover of sports and Jesus, Jesus over sports. And his wife. And Oh, yes. <laughs> Married Andrew to dog. one beautiful woman with a furball child. And yeah, that's all I got. Yeah. Daniel Brooks, yeah. everyone. And that's the title. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, of course, have a great show in store for you today. As always, we have some encouraging news, a hot take on an important question. And our special guest, Jonathan Hayward, will give his testimony and experiences as to how God has been evident in his life. You definitely do not want to miss this. And it's that time. It's positive news. This is where each host will mention one current news story that is positive, funny, or encouraging. The purpose is to bring a joy and a smile, or at least a smirk to your face. All right, so I am going to start with a cool little ditty out of Australia, and it is talking about the Tasmanian Devils. So for those of you who may remember, in 2008, the Tasmanian Devils actually had a facial tumor disease that ended up wiping out almost 90% of the population in most of Tasmania. So they were declared endangered in 2008. And there's a group called Aussie Ark down in Australia that's been working basically trying to rebuild the population. And they have actually reintroduced the Tasmanian devil to the Australian mainland in a 400 acre basically sanctuary in New South Wales. And they did this last year. So the first generation of joeys were born. So I assume joeys is which is the Australian word for Tasmanian devils. They said this is the first time that the devils have been on the continent since 1000 BC approximately. But they are, you know, supposed to be there in that ecosystem. We're hoping that it actually fights off some other invasive species that are on the continent at this time. I am going not to Australia, but to a neighbor in New Zealand, which is where 1500 meter runner Nick Willis is from. He is a part of the very nice track club up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which boo. But tonight, which is January 29th. He officially became the first person in history to run a sub four minute mile in 20 straight years. So this started back in 2003 while he was with the University of Michigan, and he did it tonight in New York at the Milrose Classic at the Armory in New York City. And currently he's 38 years old since he was 18 years old. Nick Willis every single year has run a sub four minute mile at least once. And I want to read his tweet after he ran it because I think it's really good. And in particular for the purpose of our podcast, he said, thanks to all who made today in the last 20 years possible. I became a Christian at the start of this journey, and I hope I've represented Jesus to the best of my ability which going back to previous podcast episodes when we talked about does the outcome of a sporting event matter? And I think Nick Willis did a good job of explaining that by just saying that he's hoped that he's represented Jesus well. That's super impressive. And 
Well done, Nick Willis. I think you've represented Jesus pretty darn well. A 19-year-old pilot by the name of Zara Rutherford. She lands in Belgium and sets a world record as the youngest woman to fly solo around the world. So Rutherford actually crossed 41 countries, and she did it to inspire other women to enter into STEM fields, as there's only about 5.1% of uh, pilots are women. Her journey consisted of 32,000 miles, and it took her 155 days. And now it's time for our hot take. Coming up in our next segment after hot takes, our guest has been doing mission work internationally for the majority of his life. But that got us as the host to thinking, do we have to leave our country for it to be called the mission field? Okay, so I wanted to start actually with kind of the basic concept of of missions and what that means and what it ends up being is a, is a calling. So I'll jump you know, right to the Great Commission, which is Matthew 28, uh, verses 19 and 20. Uh, and it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It kind of sets up a, a thing right at the beginning of the concept of missions, that you are supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, I mean, that's the basic heart behind what you do with missions and where you want to go. A ton of other verses in the Bible that basically say that, especially as you look through Acts and some of the other Gospels. One of them is Acts 1.8, and it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I wanted to bring that verse specifically up because it actually starts, you know, for those of you who don't know, all of the disciples and, and Paul would have lived in Jerusalem at the beginning of their ministry. And so it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so Paul kind of like, if you can imagine like a zoomed in thing on Jerusalem, and then it's like with everything that he says, he just zooms out a little further. That's basically what Paul is is doing there. And so he's like, yeah, you're going to be here in Jerusalem. You're also going to be in Judea and you're in Samaria and you're going all the way into the world. Like you're, you're going everywhere, but it is the idea that Jesus has called us to go and be ministers to all the nations. That is the last commandment that Jesus gives to his disciples is to go into all the nations and make disciples. And so I do think there's always a point of needing to leave in order to do what is considered missions, but that doesn't mean that there's not ministry that can't be done in a given area or in a given community, especially if you're called to those things. What I, what I always think with with missions and with pastoral stuff is not everybody is called to be a long-term missionary somewhere, somewhere, just like not everybody is called to be a pastor of a church. There are different callings that make up the body of Christ, and every one of us have a different calling set with that. But with that in mind, I, I do think for it to be considered a mission trip, there does have to be some effort on your part of leaving and finding people who do not know the gospel of Christ. You brought up the Great Commission, and I actually had the Great Commission with my Bible here. What's interesting in the original Greek, going back to Toccoa Falls College, shout out to Dr. Burris, who taught me a whole year of Greek, but that that phrase, to go therefore and make disciples, the actual Greek, more literally translated, would mean, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, which implies that you don't necessarily have to launch out of where you're currently living, but as you're going, meaning wherever you're going, we are called to make disciples. That means even for some of us, we 
maybe have never left the hometown that we were born in, raised in, and we might die in the very town that we grew up in. Does that mean that you're not a missionary? Absolutely not. Like you are called to be, as JT mentioned in Acts 1.8, we are called to be a witness in Jerusalem, like our local context and in Judea, which is more of like a regional thing. Samaria is the place around you that not many people want to go to and to the ends of the earth. And I think oftentimes, too, when we think of going on a bit of a tangent, when we think of the mission field, we can often think that we have to be physically there in order to complete the Lord's work. And I think there's an element of it, too, where I think I'm the only person on this podcast that has never left the country. I'm pretty sure that's abundantly clear, but that doesn't mean that my call to to pray for missionaries overseas, to pray for countries, pray for regions that don't have access to the gospel. That part of my work, even as witnessing to the ends of the earth is prayer. And we can often see prayer as a secondary work or as something that is less than or something that's thrown onto the end of a meal. But prayer is our primary work. In I think it was Luke 11 too, when Jesus pulls his disciples up and he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few to pray to the Lord of the harvest. There's an element of prayer that's so important within missions while you're boots on the ground. But even if you're not boots on the ground, there's an element of prayer within missions that's so essential. I know our guest Jonathan is going to explain all of the things with global missions, but I would like to think that a huge element of what fuels global infusion is a life that's saturated in prayer. I think even if you're not going to ever go overseas, that still doesn't leave you exempt from engaging in some type of work to pray, support, and to give towards work that's already being done. And yeah. Yeah, both of you hit on scripture that I would have hit on, Jordan. You hit on the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. When that happened, it was Jesus was going around to different towns throughout Galilee and was healing people. This That passage and peace in Matthew comes right after he's just healed a blind man. And his disciples began to just ask about why he was doing what he was doing and what led him into doing all of that. And so it just says like when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples that the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. I think in, in, in a way in this, we look at it a lot of times thinking that it is international missions. And I'll get to this in a, in a moment because I actually just went to a missions banquet today from Global Infusion, which is where our guest is from. He's the president of Global Infusion. And they gave a few statistics and he talked about how the harvest is so plentiful. Well, one of these statistics shows that five out of six non-believers have no access at all to a Christian. So we're thinking five out of six non-believers have no access at all to a Christian. And so when we think about domestic missions, I know we're in the States, some of our listeners are all over the world. But when we look at it from a state's perspective, from the United States, the majority of the people that we come in contact with, especially down here in the Bible Belt, which you two guys are not, they have heard the name of Jesus. They may not know all about the name of Jesus. They may not know what the church is. And a lot of times they've only seen the negative side of church. 
but they have known the name of Jesus. They have heard it. It is existent to their mind and it's up to them to accept, dig more or deny. But there are five out of six non-believers around the entire world that have never, ever had access to Christianity, never, ever had access to God's word. And the stat that really hit me tonight when they started talking about it too, is that 70,000 people die every single day, daily, 70,000 people die with no gospel. Never even having the chance to have heard about how to have salvation. 70,000 people daily. I mean, that hits you. And that's where we start to talk about that the harvest is plentiful. I wanted to give a definition of two words. And I've just heard this spoken different times that there's a difference between missions and discipleship. Missions, and if you look up just the Webster Google definition of mission, important assignment carried out for either political, religious, or commercial purposes, and it's typically involving travel. Or the second one, a vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. There's a lot of people that will say that missions requires travel. When discipleship, on the other hand, the word of that is discipleship is intentionally equipping believers with the word of God through accountable relationships, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. But discipleship is more about what you're doing where you are and whether or not you're doing missions, which missions requires travel. So I would say that the question, do I have to leave my country for it to be called the mission field? I would say you have to leave your comfort zone. I would say that you have to leave the space that you see daily because daily you should be discipling. Daily you should be doing outreach in ways that you're discipling because the people around you should have heard the name of Christ. If you're in that area, we should be going out and telling the name of Christ and discipling people. And discipling, again, is building them up in the faith. Discipleship is not just going and feeding the homeless, but it's actually building them and keeping them accountable. When missions requires a travel, and whether that travel means that you have to go internationally or that travel means you just have to go a few thousand miles across the country, it's, I believe that it's something out of your comfort zone. So let me just speak into a little bit of what you said, Daniel. So with the statistics you brought up, like five and six people don't know the name of Jesus to use a personal story for me, born and raised in Ohio, and we felt called to come out here to Danville, Illinois, which I would say we are missionaries to Danville right now. That's not my official title, but I am currently a missionary in the midst of people who have called Danville home for so long. And there's a culture here within Danville, Illinois, that is unique compared to Knoxville and compared to any other place really in the world. So for me, I might not have left my country, but I'm for sure a missionary to this place that I didn't call my home for so long. Like I've had to know the culture, like what's the history of the town? Like what's the religious history of the town? Because in our county, we have like 56,000 people. And I think more than 60% don't know Jesus. So this is a mission field here that there are people that need to hear the name of Jesus. And I think the difference between missions and discipleship is missions is the first step like the outreach, reaching out to like the homeless person with the blanket or whatever. 
And then when that person hears and receives the good news of Jesus and has personally made a decision to follow Jesus, that is then that the great commission of making disciples then begin to pour our lives and invest in them in growing their faith. That's where I personally see the difference between missions and discipleship is missions is a how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the good news. And we proclaim the good news to those who have never heard it. But then those that respond in faith, we then take under our wing. And as we are going, we disciple them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I did a lot of mapping out of different stuff, looking at biblical examples and then seeing what that looks like basically in our modern world. So if I look at Barnabas, who was definitely considered a missionary in the New Testament in Acts, his missionary journey basically consisted of going from Antioch, which is south of Turkey, right on the Mediterranean Sea, to Cyprus, which is a little island just right off the coast. Today, that is about a 12-hour ferry ride from Antioch to Cyprus. You can fly there in 28 minutes for $49 round trip ticket out of those. So it's really in today's terms, that's a very short distance that he ended up actually traveling for that missionary journey. You know, you kind of put some of those things in perspective. You look at Paul's missionary journey to Athens, uh, Greece. You can drive that distance today in 32 hours from Jerusalem. Uh, flight is $38, two and a half hour flight. But you've also got other apostles to look at. So if you look at Thomas, he went from Jerusalem and made it all the way to southern India in what is today uh, Tamil Nadu, India. It is 6,588 kilometers between those two places. Uh, Google predicts that it would take you 56 days of nonstop walking to go from Jerusalem to India. And really what it is, is you look at someone like Thomas takes the gospel and goes with it as far as he can, because there is a, a discipleship factor that has to be done locally and has to be taught. And that is a part of the Great Commission in and of itself. I mean, I mean, you can reread it. You look at Matthew there, it says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That is, that is the calling, is it's making disciples. And so it's it's taking people and introducing them to Jesus, introducing them to the gospel, but then also discipling them to be actual followers of Christ too. Because it's one thing to have a conversion experience and say like, oh, I'm a Christian now, but you know nothing about the greater Christian spectrum upon that first conversion. And so there is a, a mandatory discipleship that ends up happening. And, and I think, you know, when we look at it a lot of times in the modern world, we do a lot of short-term missions. So we'll go for, you know, two to three weeks in an area or maybe even a week sometime, fly out of the country, do some humanitarian work. You know, it's great. It's fine. Um, it's wonderful. And you can do that. But the point is that you always want your short-term trips to strengthen the long-term ministry that's there. So, you know, Jordan, I, like I would say to you, which you have actually physically moved from one location to another, but God has called you to do a job in the area that you're in. And like you said, with, with the actual Greek translation, it is as you are going, make disciples of all nations. And, but that also implies a going, you know, there. So it, so it is kind of like following the will of God and following the Holy Spirit. And as you're doing that, make disciples wherever you're at. I could get on a plane in the morning and be in India less than 48 hours if I wanted to be. Apostle Thomas, it would have taken him at least a full year to make that transit. When you put those in modern terms, you know, it does kind of change our scenario and how we look from like a biblical perspective versus how we're looking today. My biggest thing, and, and this is what I tell everyone, I really don't care if you go on the mission field or not. I think it would be better for you. I think it would be a very great eye-opening experience. What I care about 
is that you recognize the calling that God has put on your life and you start fulfilling that. If you're not willing to go overseas, great, wonderful. What do you do in stateside? You know, Jordan, I, I know for a fact that you've got a ministry that you're doing here and that is your field and that is you walking in your calling. I would never ask you to step outside of what calling you're doing, but there are way too many people that are sitting in the church today that aren't doing anything that's actually advancing the kingdom of God. And so my thing is the calling that God does have on your life, whether it be missions, whether it be teaching, whether it be any of the callings that God will put on your life and do that thing to the best of your ability. Because if you're not doing that, then why are you wasting your time? Why would you call yourself a Christian and say you're doing stuff for God if you're not? That's always kind of my challenge towards people when they start talking about that, because I feel like people use the, oh, my home is my mission field as almost a defense mechanism. And it can be, but is it currently? Is that what God has actually called you to do? And then is your fruit showing that calling? Are you seeing conversions? Are you discipling people? Are you able to teach people? If you're not, then ask God why and, and pursue that. Yeah, I think that's good. And back to what Jordan even said at the beginning when he talked about, you know, there's people that aren't capable of going, like their health doesn't allow it, whatever it may be, isn't allowing for opportunities to travel. But I think that it's also what you said, JT, where it's like, what are you still doing where you are? I think that God places us into specific pieces of the world and he's going to provide opportunities for us. And it's what we do with those opportunities. If you legitimately are not capable of going, that's one thing. But if you're sitting back and you're just like, uh, like I just don't want to go, whether it be local outreach or international mission field, then that's where you have to start to question and, and check your heart. You know, I just, I hear it so often where it's like, I could, I could never go out to the mission field. I could just could never. And it's not so much a, they're not capable of doing it. It's just, they decide that they don't want to do it. So often people will talk themselves out of going into it and doing missions. Uh, JT, you mentioned it, Matthew 28, 19 through 20 It's the great commission. It's just saying, go in therefore make disciples of all the nations. So if we're capable and able and willing to go into these different nations, then that's what we're doing. Just to give continue on that encouragement in the Great Commission, it ends with, I am with you always yes. to the end of the age, that mm. as you go, you are going under the authority that Jesus has been given in heaven and on earth, that the work that Jesus did is the all the authority that we could ever need. And we walk in that authority as we go out and make disciples as we go out and do missions work, which Second Timothy 4 tells us to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry, meaning that we are actually all called to go out in whatever capacity it is and to be a light, to share the good news, yeah. which is a key part of the mission field. And for some of us, like there are going to be single mothers that are listening to this, your children are are your mission field. Like what JT said, if there's fruit with that, hallelujah. Like we yeah. can't forsake the home to go because for some of us, our home is our mission field. So just make sure that you have your calling sure that you know that you know that where the Lord has placed you currently is a place that you are engaging fully first with the presence of the Lord, because we can't do missions work if God's not with us. Because there surely will be people who don't know Jesus that stroll into your workplace. And that's all we have for this week's hot take. Our special guest this week is a founder and president of Global Infusion, a missions organization that started in 2003. 
Global Infusion meets the needs of people while sharing the love of Jesus Christ in over 20 countries. Our guest was born in Canada. He's the husband and a father of three. He's an Oral Roberts alumni, a traveled missionary, and a very talented musician and a good friend of ours. He is Jonathan Hayward. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been uh, been good. I did listen to the first podcast. You guys are doing an awesome job. And just getting this content out there, you know, this day and age, I know there's a generation that questions everything, you know, and being able to just listen to people who've truly experienced it. I think it's it's hitting a mark that isn't being hit. And you guys are doing uh, a great job. And now it's exciting to be here. When I grew up, my dad and mom, they were pastors my whole life. So I kind of grew up on the other side of the pulpit. You know, I saw life and ministry from a pastor's perspective, even though I wasn't up there, you know, preaching and teaching. It's just by osmosis and you're just saturated in it. Just nonstop ministry, seven days a week, morning till night, even though I had school and things like that. So I would start with the prime examples of my whole life have been my parents and just watching their faithfulness, not only to God, but to the churches they've served in from planting churches from the ground up to large churches we had to manage, we meaning them, just every every aspect. And when I got older, I know they tried to shield me from certain things, but I watched how they interacted with people. And from that moment on, I just realized the impact they were making on the world And just when that is ingrained in you from day one, it becomes part of your spiritual DNA. And so I had that advantage. I definitely had that. The new term now is gospel privilege. I was born with it. I wasn't one of the three billion that have never heard the name of Jesus. I was in it. So that was a huge advantage. But, you know, God doesn't have grandchildren. You have to discover him for yourself. And I knew that and I heard it preached and I heard a million sermons. I will say I was saved at an early age. It was very elementary. If I can condense it to a short amount of time, I had a dream when I was like four or five and it was Jesus in it and uh, the devil. (laughs) I didn't like the devil and I ran to Jesus, woke up and my dad was there and prayed with me and in my bed and I just gave my life to Christ. And one thing I can tell you is after traveling the world and just being able to interact with kids in multiple nations, First of all, kids are like a blank slate. You know, what you start painting on them and writing on them, they will absorb it. So whatever they're around. So it happened to me as a in a Christian home, which is why, uh, shameless plug, missions is so important, especially reaching out to kids and building that structure for them. But uh, never neglect children's ministry or children in general, because they're absorbing a lot more than you think. And they can articulate it in their way. But as a four or almost five-year-old who I believe I got saved when I got saved, I can give you a pretty clear picture of who I thought Jesus was and what Christianity was about. Of course, it was very rudimentary and very elementary, but not much has deviated from that. And honestly, after all this training and all the training we made Daniel endure and everybody else, the gospel is very simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And all you have to do is change your loyalty, change your loyalty from the things of this world to Jesus, and your life will be transformed for eternity. So I was saved early, and I just grew up in it. And then real life happens. Eventually, you leave the nest, and then you have to rely on your own faith. And I experienced it on a lot of levels, and to this day, I still do. One of the most prominent things I can tell you is 
one time when I was in college, when I came home for the summer, I'd gone on a mission trip like every summer. I was actually pre-med and undergrad and I went on mission trips because I'm like, I better get this out of my system now because I'll never really be able to travel when I get older. <laughs> that was funny. Um, so I came back from a mission trip, went home to see my parents and then before I headed back to school. And one day I was at my dad's church, played piano for worship, went to take the uh, mandatory Pentecostal nap in the afternoon. <laughs> and uh, I didn't get up till like Tuesday. I don't know what happened. I woke up and my mom was very concerned because that's what moms do. And she's like, I think you're sick. And I'm like, why? And then she's like, it's Tuesday. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. So long story short there, I went into the doctor and I found out I had mono. And this was like two weeks before going back to college. So I'm a very organized person. Yeah, when I, I had my life plan, I was like, there is no way I'm not going back to school. Like I will physically drag myself. I don't care how sick I am. This cannot jack up my life. Like I've got this plan going. I do trust God and his path and everything, but I got, I got stuff going on too. So that was, internal battle was going on and it's, it was a horrible feeling. And I, maybe some people have experienced it over the last couple of years, especially in this day and age, but just, you were fine one day and one day you're not. And you're like, I am completely helpless unless I have outside assistance at a natural or supernatural level. It was very frustrating when your mind works and races and you're just sitting there. In my dad's church, this one we were in at this point in our lives, when I was in college, we had just planted a church. We, again, meaning them, I helped as much as I could. Mm -hmm. But my senior year of, of high school, we moved to New City Church Plant. God just brought up the world to us. And I have a feeling that was subconsciously affecting me. We probably had more than 20, 25 nations represented and grew from like 20 to 200 people in like a couple years. And so we had a lot of people. So one day my door opens and I'm sitting there with Mr. Mono and I'm like, this, this is terrible. And in walk about a half a dozen to maybe a dozen Africans. And they're not transplanted. They were there for school and then going back to, they're really from the homeland. And they really, really believe God because I found that a lot of places in this world, uh, one of my favorite quotes is Mother Teresa's, and that is, you don't know how much you need Jesus until Jesus is all you've got. On this side of the world, we have a lot of insurances. We have car insurance, health insurance, life insurance, home insurance. You know, we have a fail safe, we think. And then if none of that works, then maybe we'll pray. But I have a bunch of Africans in my room that have grown up with literally nothing that pray the lights out. And they heard I was sick and demanded they come over and pray for me. And they're right up in my room. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what is happening? And they just prayed up a storm. It was nothing I felt that moment. And I felt like I'd been kind of healed in my life previous to that. You know, I had flu and other things. But this one was pretty major. And then you got doctors who were telling you it could be this, it could be that, it could be life debilitating, might never leave you. You might have to live like this the rest of your life. And I'm like, well, thanks for that. So they pray and uh, I'm, I'm hyped. And uh, then I just fall asleep. The next morning I had a doctor's appointment and my mom and dad brought me in. The doctor tested me and I was feeling stronger. And I'm like, maybe it's psychosomatic. You know, I'm like, okay, just I'm getting hyped for 24 hours here. Doctor ran a blood test on me and he said, we can't find anything. There's nothing in your system and you should probably in the next few days start feeling normal. I was supposed to drive away about three or four days later to college, which was a 20 plus hour drive for me, went far away for school. And I did. I went back to school and I was completely healed. 
So I'd seen it my whole life, but to experience on that level and when I needed it and when people are telling, it wasn't, you know, a terminal illness, but, you know, some Mm -hmm. doctors presented it like that. So that was huge. And that just started off a chain of events in my life that I'm like, I have to build my own faith. Mm -hmm. I can't rely on anybody else. And now I'm starting to develop my testimony of my own faith because Revelation says, this is how we're going to win the world, the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. I was able to, through school, go on many mission trips. And one of my early ones was to the Middle East to an undisclosed location. And there's only been a couple of times in my life where I truly went head to head with people on a apologetic level, kind of what you guys are doing in a very professional way. I kind of went for the juggler or so I thought I was so smart with people of other religions. And I'll tell you that there are people who know more about Christianity than you realize. In fact, sometimes more than Christians. A lot of Christians read the Bible like the EULA license of software, you know, scroll through everything I agree. What did you just read? I have no idea. Well, it will matter once you really need it. Trust me. I felt like I won some arguments, but even if I did, I'm like, what's the point? Jesus said, we will be known by our love for one another and our love for him. And I'm like crushing someone in argument, even if I could do that, which I actually don't think I can. I wish I could have all that knowledge right at my fingertips. That's really not even the point. And I felt like I failed. And I'm like, I'm the team leader out here, man. I just went at it with this dude and nothing really got solved. And the next couple houses, I was very defeated. I just didn't have anything left. And they, they opened the door and kind of said, you know, what would you like to talk about? And we did what we were trained to do. We talked about how we love their country and just kind of bridge that gap, get them talking about their faith. And just so that they eventually feel obligated to talk to us and ask us questions, which is exactly what happened. And I told them my story, my testimony. And a lot of people think, well, if you grew up in a Christian home, you don't really have much of a testimony, but you know, God did protect me from a lot. And I, it's, it's amounted to a lot, you know, there's a lot of things it happened. And that guy just sat there and listened and listened. And I realized that day that, you know, all the knowledge in the world is not going to win anybody, but truly the power of your testimony is going to change people's lives. And from that moment on, I'm like, I do want to know what I believe. I really have to have a solid systematic theology. I can't just walk around saying all this stuff and not understand truly what I believe and preach. But I'm telling you guys, when you get to certain places, you're in the face of someone who has a terminal illness. They're under a religious oppression. They haven't even heard the name of Jesus, a political oppression. You're in garbage dumps. You're in places where it is absolute abject poverty. You're seeing people sacrificed to idols. You're seeing the gates of hell in front of you. You get to this realization, uh, kind of a self-actualization is I either believe what I really say I believe or I don't. And I have to do this right now. And that's part of our missions training I've been trying to instill is it's not a game. You're either in or you're out. And the whole world can say, well, I'm not sure if there really is a God. I have seen entire communities change from the ground up. We've planted churches in places like Guatemala. When I say we, again, all credit to God first, second to our amazing contacts in the indigenous. If you don't know about GI, um, one thing God gave me early on is we have to start with the people who are in these nations. They have the heartbeat. They're the blood, sweat, and tears of these nations. And God doesn't just touch me. He touches these men and women around the world with a vision to reach their nation for Christ. And I come in with asking questions like, what is your methodology? How do you reach them? And work my way almost backwards. Start with them, their vision, work it out and say, how can we supplement this? And when they say, we got to go into these areas 
And this is how people respond best to the gospel. We'll do it. So we've seen it in places like Guatemala, where they were literally fighting each other with machetes, and now there's churches planted. That is not a behavioral modification. That is an internal spiritual transformation amongst a large group of people, not just one. I've witnessed it and witnessed it continually. I've seen it in other locations that I can't really discuss. It's just when a whole community, there's one word I learned in college. Here's some of my, all the, here's a hundred grand worth of training for free. (laughs) Um, There's a word that is called ontological. It means you are changed from your very core. When Jesus comes in and transforms someone's life, it is not just this superficial, I don't do all my bad vices anymore. I just cuss less than sinners now. So look at what God's done. No, he reaches right in to the core of who you are and totally transforms it. Everything you are. He reaches into your past when everybody just shames you because of what you've done. He reaches in your future and changes what you're about to do. Like absolutely everything has changed about you, but you can't experience that until you've actually experienced that. You can tell people about it and they will argue with you on the podcast and develop their own. And at the end of the day, I'm not here to argue with you. And I, can I do my little systematic theology and go through soteriology and yeah, but what's that going to do to change someone's life? You know, that's more for me internally. I've got to show love to people, but I really have to communicate the gospel as well. One of my dad's preaching lines that I've adopted is hungry people go deaf. Mm -hmm. There's two hands of the gospel. I can preach all day long, but if people are starving to death, they may not be tracking with me as well. Yes, the gospel is transformational, but I also can't just make it two dimensional. I can't just hand out food or just do a little bit of, I'm not going to rhyme off all the things we do without addressing the spiritual, because then I'm just putting on like a temporary bandaid for an eternal cancer. And then I have to believe that the God I serve is so transformational and loves people so much that he's going to use my words to reach into the heart of somebody else and totally transform them. And I have to believe for that person because there's a difference between just arbitrarily just, you know, saying things and showing up in person. Our world is big, but I feel like it's getting smaller. I'm not going to name everything you can do to reach the lost. I like to go right where they live into their huts, into their desert homes, into their urban environments and be like, I don't have all the answers, but I know the one who does. I'm walking around East Africa or the Middle East or places. I'm like, I was just in South America and I'm like, the resources is so minimal to transform the lives of these communities. And I have the infrastructure, we have the knowledge, but it's so much more bigger than that. And they have little kids coming up to you and families who are just happy to receive prayer. And I'm like, God, I'm praying right now that this little bit that I'm doing will transform this little family's life in such a way that it will last for eternity. I wish I could build them a home, get their kids into good schools, get the dad a job, get the mom a job if she wants, get them trained, discipled and out into ministry. And that's just one family, but that's why it takes all of us. And that's transformational right there. And to me, when I see a person's life, especially returning, that their life is complete. They were one way and now they're another way. And then when I have the advantage of doing it so long and seeing entire communities transformed, there is no way you can tell me there's no God. Not there's two, This is not coincidental. This yeah. is an ontological, deep transformation. And when God gets his hands and transforms entire areas, you can feel it. A lot of uh, people who are not on our belief patterns 
they'll say that's what you've reduced it to. It's just an emotion. You feel good. A lot of coincidences. I'm glad you feel good. Do what you got to do in this lifetime to get you through. It's way more than that. If this wasn't real to me, what a big waste of time. I wouldn't, I wouldn't make my kids go through all the things they do. Are you kidding me? Like there's a, there's a practical side to this. Like, you really think I like raising money? Do you really think I like leaving my family? Do you really think I like being on a plane for 14 hours in row 17K jammed in beside two screaming kids? Yeah, this is the life, man. Missions is so awesome. Yeah. I love sleeping in the, with Sherpas in the middle of the Himalayas and eating chicken bones and who knows what else. This is so great. Yeah, I'm just doing this because it's, you know, it's so beneficial and I get so many medals of honor for this. No, it's because Jesus changed my life. And I feel like he became us in this life so that we could ultimately be like him. And why would I waste a, a single second doing anything else? Um, if I had one question to ask, it's not directly from yours, but it's the question, the question of this week, which is our hot take section. We've already recorded this prior to interviewing you. The question is, do you have to leave your country to be on the mission field? This is for me personally, and uh, kind of for our organization. Missions occurs where the church is not, and evangelism happens at home. You can evangelize in your own country, top to bottom, but missionaries are not in their passport country. They actually have to leave and do something, partially because all Christians should be evangelists. But part of me is I've met real missionaries. I've sent real missionaries. I've never done it. But I've seen the grind that missionaries go through and the, what they felt. And to think that I just walk out there and I'm like, well, I'm a missionary just like them. Mm, they, I don't have to deal with my kids having diphtheria and nowhere to take them. And I don't have to change my diet and learn another language and have oppression politically and fear for my life constantly. And a bunch of, I, the list is enormous. So I believe that every Christian should be and is an evangelist right where they are. And in order to do mission work, you are taking the gospel to where it isn't or somewhere outside of your passport country because it is truly a mission. Like you are literally going somewhere on a mission. And I've tried to design GI even from the philosophical aspect, not just theological, that we're not just arbitrarily sending people out. We're not just like, well, everybody got to do a good mission trip every now and then. No, it's got to be like, why are we going? Can we define the purpose? Why are we specifically going there? How is this helping the overall goal? You know, I, we hardly ever do things like construction trips. Why? Because there's people in the countries that we go to when we do build a church after five, 10 years of growing the actual church, which is people, there's men and women who are unemployed that need employment. Uh, I'm not really sending skilled laborers. If I can raise enough to send the indigenous to build something, use their own materials. I'm helping their economy, helping their people, providing employment. There's so many things about letting the indigenous or the nationals build their own place, even non-Christian ones assisting with stuff like that. They will take much more pride in it. If we build something in the middle of the jungle, it could get torn down in a day. If they do, they'll defend it. So there's even principles like that. So I have to think through that, but that there's a lot going on that is missional that I have to think through and when we design it. But to me, if everything is missions and nothing is missions.
That's yeah. the way I look. I mean, because the moment I teach my kid one thing, well, I'm a teacher. Well, I put a band on it. I'm a doctor. Uh, you know, I'm like, well, no, you're not. <laughs> you you didn't go through the grind of going through all the training that these professionals did. And it's not that you have to be a professional Christian, but I watch these families that just give up so much. But then you talk to them and they're right where they need to be. But um, please, everybody be an evangelist right where you are. But I also believe in polycentric missions. Here's some more missiology, meaning all the missionaries aren't coming from the West or the majority world. We want, we have second level missions and we, we bring the great commission to the great commission. We are not there to just, well, here we are and there you are. And you, you're so, you're so blessed to have us. Uh, we go within the attitude of you, when you see what we do, I pray God raises up someone from like Kenya to go into Asia. Like it's mm-hmm. not just coming from one part of the world. It's polycentric. It's the the sending out of people from every nation. God still calls people to do this. Yeah. It's very missional. And, and the Great Commission isn't canceled and it's not, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances in this world. Yeah, That's right. Absolutely. Well, Jonathan, we definitely want to honor your time. Thank you so much for coming on here. We do appreciate it. I think it was a really good conversation. You guys as Global Infusion organize long-term and short-term missionaries and then get those people plugged into different countries where God has called them. So I'm just going to give you a chance there to kind of put in what you guys do, how to contact you if somebody's interested in getting their church or themselves involved. I believe this is literally what I was born for. My path in life took a few different directions from pre-med to a music performance degree to a theological degree, all these turns and youth pastor, worship leader, and now I'm out in the world. But I believe I've locked into what God has called me to do. My dream is to help mobilize people. So if there is anyone out there, it's not just churches. We mobilize high schools, colleges, universities, schools of ministry, businesses, families, churches, big and small. We, this is our ministry. We're not like making money on this. If you're like, how do I get my people to the field? In the last two years, believe it or not, we've sent out a dozen mission teams and um, a lot more that I could list. Uh, they just got open the door. But that is our goal. If you want to be mobilized, we can help you. Small church, big church, doesn't matter. Our heart is to see your people mobilized. We want you to develop a relationship with the people we work with overseas so you can see fruit and fruit that remains. Get to know them. Get to know the contacts with kids. See a church planted from the ground up. And it takes years to see a the uh, community changed and transformed. And we want to know you, you know, just understanding that. Then we have long-term. Daniel's experienced this and we're getting better and better all the time. Now we're actually offering an accredited degree program, both bachelor's and master's and give us a little bit more. We're accredited all the way to a doctorate, but we have to dot a few more I's and cross a few more T's. But the concept is providing people with the tools for true long-term missions individuals, couples, families, we are outfitted for it now. And we want to provide you with the best possible training and education and backbone infrastructure that we can to sustain you on the field for the long term. So both short term and long term, if you are interested, globalinfusion.org, get on there, contact us anytime, and we will we'll get in touch with you. We're trying to mobilize the body of Christ to reach the unreached. It's game time. This week's game is an evidence podcast original. It is secular or sacred. 
Love Song Edition. And the host of this week's game is going to be Jordan. Ayo, this is going to be fun. The Valentine's Day season is upon us. There are many quote-unquote love songs out there, and sometimes it's hard to tell if a song is about your special someone or about our Lord and Savior. So I'm going to read a line or a lyric from a love song, and JT and Daniel are going to have to guess if it's a secular song or if it's a sacred song. I'm ready for this. Absolutely. I'm loving this change of seat here because I have had to MC, not had to, but I've gotten to MC all of the last ones. And your lack of movie knowledge was killing me. So I'm ready to <laughs> show up on Let, some JT. Let's right do now. this thing. So I, you, you better know some of this music then. If you're going right. to dog him about his movie knowledge, man. You, you better. better know the music. So to clarify for our listeners, I will go back and forth between Daniel and JT. They have to guess secular sacred, but there will be bonus points awarded if they can guess the musical artist and the name of the song. And if they can't, then the other person will get the chance to steal. So we are going to start with Daniel. Your first song, because no one can deny this love I have inside and I'll give it all to you. That is a love song. Is it secular or sacred? Oh, that's right. <laughs> that is secular. You are correct. JT, do you know the name of the song or the artist? I have no idea. No. I'm going to go with the song name is Give It All to You. I'm going to go Aerosmith, maybe? So it is not Aerosmith. It is My Endless Love by Diana Ross. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. Which I believe this song was featured in one of the... Oh, it was in Happy Gilmore when he's like skating with the girl. and oh. So like you've the seen Happy Gilmore. In the background. <laughs> yeah. See, I've seen that movie. I, isn't, the, isn't the sound like, give it all to you? Yep. Yeah, I get that. No one can deny <laughs> this love I have inside. Yes. Yeah. See, anyway, if you would have done, done that, I would have had it. <laughs> I know, right? Okay. So, Daniel, you got one point. JT, your love is one in a million. It goes on and on and on. I'm going to go with Sacred on that one. I do not know the artist or the song. So, you are incorrect. <sighs> it is secular. Daniel, do you care to try to steal the artist and the title? I'm going to go with the song's name is Your Love. Incorrect. And the, darn. And the artist is Hillsong United. <laughs> well, it, it was already declared a secular song. Oh, so. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I, I was trying Hillsong to write down. secular. Uh, Got to pay was, attention, man. I was no, trying so, to write down the score if Jordan wasn't. So. No, I'm writing down the scores. Oh, good so, deal. So it is a secular song. It is by Aaliyah. It is one in a million. That's what I said. That's a Hillsong United, Aaliyah, same thing. Okay. All right, Daniel, you ready for song number two? Absolutely. Okay. Your fragrance is intoxicating in our secret place. Yeah, that's 100% a sacred song. You are correct. Oh, I know. I know this one. I'm just trying to think of who actually sings it. I'm going to go with, oh, man, what's the dude's name? Big old Afro. I mean, he's, he's a white dude with an afro and a beard, and I've seen him in concert numerous times. I cannot think of his name. Weird Al Yankovic? <laughs> no, he doesn't have an afro. He has long hair. Um, what is the dude's name? I think it's like David something, but I'm totally blanking. All right, JT. Nope, I don't have this one. Okay. 
It is it is a sacred song. It is called Your Love is Extravagant by Casting Crowns. Whew, no, Ooh. I wouldn't. I, that was my first concert. Your but I, love is extravagant. Your friendship. Your friend, yep. it your is fragrance is intoxicating. I should have known that one. Oh, man. Yeah. All yeah. the 90s Christians are literally so my upset first with concert you. was Casting Crowns, and I should have known that one. But hey, I got, the, okay. I got the song right. You got the point. So. JT, your next song. Your love I'll keep forevermore. You're the first, you're the last, my everything. I'm going sacred. I think the song is forevermore. I'm not sure who the artist is. Incorrect on two counts. Two ways. Uh, so okay. It is a secular song. No, I gotta Daniel. I get to I get to guess. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we do know that secular's not right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. Um, I was thinking it's my everything is the is the name, and I'm probably totally off on the artist. I'm going boys to men. <laughs> uh, so it is you're the first, the last, my everything by Barry White. Oh, Barry White. Oh, dad. The whole Barry song White. is first to last, my everything. It's that many lines. Yeah. Look, it's Jeez. Barry White. He can do whatever the heck yeah, he wants. True. Okay, so next, Daniel, you're still up to nothing. Your voice right. is warm and tender, a love that I could not forsake. That is a sacred song. No way. Oh, yeah, got to be. And Do you have a guess on the name and artist? Um, so the guy I was trying to think of earlier, I'm just going to stick with it, David Crowder. <laughs> and uh... <laughs> He doesn't have an afro. Yeah, he does. Look at no. his hair. If he's not covering up with an international harvester hat, got a fro <laughs> he's had a fro for at one point it is long at other points gotta go with your voice is the- <laughs> you are incorrect it is a secular song jt you care to try to steal anything oh no not even um no so it is a secular song it is the power of love by celine dion celine dion i'm gonna be honest if it's not my heart goes on i'm not getting celine dion that's fair yeah but look, you could have at least got the fact that it was a secular song, but it's okay. All right, JT, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Okay. My love is mine and I am his. Okay. I'm going to go sacred on that one. And I think it's from the Song of Solomon, which was written by Solomon. <laughs> no way. I mean, it is. You sacred. are absolutely correct. Really? On all fronts? It is a sacred song, and it is from Song of Solomon 2, verse 16. <laughs> you yeah. got to be kidding me. <laughs> so, <laughs> I totally thought I had music behind there we that. Go. <laughs> so I am giving, I'm giving JT two points for that one, so now it's all Wait, tied up. I should get three points, right? That's three. He got, he got Solomon as the artist, song from him as yeah. the, the name. Yeah. That's, oh, you, that's or fair. did he have to have the verse? No, like the look, reference. The fact that he knew it was Song of Solomon, I'll give him three. I literally yeah. was singing it in my head, and I don't know where from. Well but, done. Yeah. Well done. All right, so we head into round four. JT is up three to two. All right. Man, I'm like Atlanta. Fix that one game. song. How the turntables have <laughs> turned. Have turned. <laughs> so, Daniel, I have faith in you, though. Oh, I'm do- I'm winning this thing, no doubt. Okay. So lay back against you and breathe. Feel your heart beat. This love is so deep. It's more than I can stand. Lay back against me and breathe. Feel your heart beat. This love is so deep. 
It's more than I can stand. You want to answer it, friend? It's clearly a sacred song. Okay. That I don't know the artist of. <laughs> uh, it's got to be, got to be Bethel. You have an idea of the title? Uh, breathe. No. Incorrect. Love is so. Love but is so. It is sacred. It's love is so deep. Wrong again. <laughs> That's too long for a Christian title. Come on now. Yeah, well, All right. Barry White's got three lines. All right, JT, you care to try to steal? Yeah, yeah, I will. And I'm trying to think of the name of the song. Uh, but I'm going to go with Elevation Worship, not Bethel. I can't remember you're, the name of the song. You're getting closer. It's The More I Seek You by Carrie Job. Oh, yeah. The more, uh, more I seek you, the more I find But was it Carrie Job with Elevation? No, she, was, it just she, Job? she did a song with Elevation. Yeah. The more I was it that song? You. No, it was not. Okay. <laughs> she did The Blessing. Okay. Okay. The more I love you. So, all right, Daniel, that's enough. Such a good song. <laughs> no. I'm sorry. That sounds bomb. So, so JT, the first step pleases the father might be the hardest to take, but when you come out of the water, I'm a believer. I feel like this is maybe a trick question, but I'm going to go sacred. I mean, okay. that's pretty, as I say, that's pretty blatant. Um, I'm going to take a pretty big jump and say that this is Hillsong. I have no idea what the song okay. is. Okay. You are incorrect. It is a secular song. Really? I, I want it. I want this one so bad. I know who it is. Oh. All right. It's uh, Come Out of the Water by Rascal Flats. Incorrect. My no. Friend. Is it? Oh, is it Something in the Water by Carrie Underwood? Nope. Oh, well, I got nothing. It is Keep throwing artists by, out there. Holy by Justin Bieber featuring Chance the Oh, Rapper. yeah. Oh, man. The first step pleases the father. father. I'm a believer. It says something about Joe Pesci. And then he. Talks yeah. about getting good. Oh meat, my yeah. We could I'm edit so, that part. I out. literally listen to Justin Bieber on repeat all the time. I'm not even ashamed to say it. And his uh Dang. EP, his EP like of his like scripture stuff, there's some cussing, but that should be a recommended one day. <laughs> but it so, is not this day. We are entering <laughs> <Not> today. <laughs> we're entering round five, gentlemen. We are tied three to three. Just the way I like so, it. So Daniel, you are up. And yeah. the wonder of it all. Is that I'm living just to fall more in love with you? Oh yeah, that's completely a sacred song. I don't know, Chris Tomlin. I know that's wrong. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> JT, care to steal? I'm gonna throw out Elevation Worship. Close, but no cigar. It is <sighs> Deeper by Delirious. Oh man, Deeper Delirious. I haven't heard of Delirious in years, but Deeper, yeah. All right, JT, you can. So now I'm down one, right? Or win it. You are down one. Okay, so I gotta know. I got to know this song. All right. You, Let's you, do this. You do. The colors of the morning are inside your eyes. Okay. I'm going with secular and let's say seal. Seal? That is incorrect. On both fronts? Yes. Oh, dang it. It is Your Beautiful by Phil Wickham. Oh, I man. see your face in every sunrise. The colors of the morning are inside your eyes and then he goes on to say like you're beautiful ten thousand times you're beautiful, <laughs> right? beautiful. not, quite, not quite james blunt but <laughs> which this podcast is just revealing who has the most vocal talent in this <laughs> podcast and that would not be this guy so ah, you're good man so to put a bookend on the game in our first edition of secular sacred 
love song edition daniel brooks comes out on top four to three what i tell you jt what i tell you congrats yeah, you got daniel it. but i will i will say i'm kind of disappointed in both of us considering that there were 30 available points and, and we have seven three man you know only four out of 30 non-believers no. No, <laughs> <laughs> let's not start that again <laughs> we don't want to end this episode without giving a quick evidence recommend from each of us host so i'll start here at evidence podcast we're not beneath giving other podcasts a shout out and one of my favorite podcasts is called Southside rabbi it's with kb and amin hudson and they tackle some really big topics uh, in particular about racial justice and they've gone into huge podcasts about things of like demonic activity and they've been really helpful for me as a white guy to understand the lived experience of someone who doesn't look like me or anything like that so give them a follow subscribe and i'd encourage you to take a listen to that podcast once again Southside rabbi and my recommendation this week is Jesus is Calling the Devotion. So there is a podcast, Jesus is Calling, if you don't like to read. If you do like to read, it is a short devotion, daily devotion, that is coming from essentially the voice of God. It's just him as in God speaking to you. Um, but my wife and I have started reading this most days, and it's just something that you can read quick before you walk out the door. And yeah, that's my recommendation. Jesus is Calling the devotion so mine is actually going to be a board game uh from kryptonite collectibles incorporated uh the name of the game is that time you killed me and it is a two-player board game that is probably one of the funnest board games i think i've played in a long time me and my wife just recently got it um and it is extremely complex but at the same time very fun it's like chess meets time travel uh times 10 so you know i highly recommend that to anyone who wants to go do it we want to give a special thanks to Jonathan Hayward for joining us this week, telling us how God has been evident in his life. If you would like to learn more about Global Infusion and how it could help give you experiences that will last a lifetime, as well as an eternal impact on people all over the world, then visit globalinfusion.org. You can also find them on Facebook at Global Infusion or on Instagram at global underscore infusion and find out how you can get connected with short-term missions for you or your church. And that's all for this week's episode. I'm Daniel Brooks. I'm Jordan Lang. And I'm JT Shavers. And you've been listening to Evidence. Thanks for lending us your ears. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating and a review. If you didn't like what you hear, either way, we're glad that you stuck around. Still give it a review. We appreciate any kind of feedback you could give us. Also, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. See you guys next week. Ciao. Ciao. <laughs> <laughs> This has been an Evidence Media Podcast. Dwong. <laughs>